From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Shanine McLean says she'll fight for the rest of her life to defend her son's name and to reform policing. CPR criminal justice reporter Allison Sherry joins us with what McLean told her about how the last year has shaped her resolve at a time when not everyone was genuinely trying to help. So anybody who's profiting literally off of my son's murder are totally gross. And it's not just in the form of trying to make money off of his death. It's in the form of trying to use his name to gain notoriety for their own organizations. Then, the Purplish team kicks off a special report on what's at stake as the deadline looms to redraw the state's political districts. Plus, the Paralympics get started in Tokyo. We'll hear from Coloradans hoping to bring home the gold. And where is Ryan headed next on the Colorado Matters road trip? I'm Francie Swidler, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. It was a 2004 Nissan Pathfinder. It was a really cool car at a certain period in time, and it has seen some things. So it was time for the car to get off the street anyway, and I knew that it would make me feel okay about saying goodbye. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Shanine McLean says she'll fight for the rest of her life. She's fighting to defend her son's name and to reform policing. It's been two years since Elijah McLean's death in the custody of Aurora Police. The 23-year-old died after he was placed into two carotid chokeholds and injected with ketamine. His name later became synonymous with calls for police reform, but some people took advantage. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry is here. Hi, Allison. Hi, Avery. You recently spoke with Janine McLean. You say that she's now friendless and committed to changing policing in Colorado and nationally. Why friendless? I think she would say she just doesn't know who she can trust at this point. You know, when the GoFundMe jumped up to $2.5 million after George Floyd's death, Uh, She was getting cold calls from people seeking donations. Protesters she thought were out there because of her son were calling and asking for money for their own purposes. So she largely shut a lot of people down and out of her life, I think, for some self-preservation and also to protect her other kids. Mm. You spoke with Janine McLean a year ago at a demonstration during a reckoning with police brutality. Do you have a sense of how the passage of time has affected her? You know, I think it's really crystallized what she wants to do in her son's name. Uh, you know, as you'll hear in the story, she doesn't want to have a bullhorn leading a group of people down a street. You know, she wants to work more behind the scenes and definitely more quietly in trying to affect change in policing. She just doesn't want anyone else to go through what she went through. Allison, thank you. Let's listen now to your story with Shanine McLean. And a warning, some of the descriptions are disturbing. When Elijah McLean's death started becoming national news, many people expected his mother, Shanine McLean, to take a leading role in the protest movement against police violence. But she's clear that's not her path. I'm not that kind of person, you know, to get on the bullhorn and uh, lead a bunch of people down the street trying to fight for rights that we shouldn't have to fight for. Still, in the two years since her son's death, she's become a force for change, both in Colorado and nationally. For me, it comes down to the policies and the laws. Shanine McLean's nightmare started the night of August 24, 2019, when Aurora police stopped her son as he walked home from a convenience store after buying iced tea. 
A caller told police they saw a suspicious man wearing a mask, waving his arms at them. When McLean didn't immediately follow an officer's commands, he was tackled to the ground, put in two carotid chokeholds. He says a crew with a roar of fire had to give McLean a sedative to calm him down, and that on his way to the hospital, he suffered a cardiac arrest. Paramedics say he regained his pulse and is now at the hospital. At the time, Shanine McLean was homeless and living at a hotel with Elijah's siblings. Police contacted her that night on a messaging app and said they needed to come get her but refused to say why. So they came to the hotel that I was at and they put me in one police vehicle and they put my two children in another police vehicle and there was a police liaison or the victim's advocate was there also. And when we got to the hospital, it was it still took another hour or so for them to let me see Elijah. When she finally did get to his room, Elijah wasn't in good shape. He was hooked up to a ventilator and had bubble wrap around his torso. His head was swollen, and there were tubes and machines coming out of his nose and mouth. His eyes were open a little, but not alert. Shanine says she would play music from her phone that he liked, mostly classical, and get small little reactions from him. He didn't like rap music at all. (laughs) His brain was not registering with the rap music at all. But once it got to violin and things that he was already into, it was a steady it was a steady wave of his brain chemistry. But after several days, doctors declared McLean brain dead and took him off life support. In the months following her son's death, Shanine McLean was achingly lonely. She held vigils near the spot where he died, a patch of weeds by the highway, which she decorated with little solar lights and artificial flowers from the dollar store. As a single mom, doing everything I could to ensure that Elijah had a future so that he wouldn't end up a statistic. And then him being a statistic anyway felt like the world had rejected us, you know. She hired a lawyer, but says there was more talking and media attention and interviews than actual change. She hadn't talked to anyone at the Aurora Police Department since the hospital. She didn't know where things stood. At that moment in 2019, the broader public was not focused on police brutality or violence. Colorado was quiet. The politicians in Colorado were quiet. That changed in the summer of 2020 after George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. Black lives matter! Black lives You know, after George Floyd was murdered, there was a lot of, a lot of internet searches, so to say. People started finding out that there was other people that were killed by police officers that didn't get that much attention as George Floyd. And so Elijah's name started circulating a lot more. Shanine says finally people were listening to her son's story. I was on Twitter, I was on Instagram, I was on YouTube, I was on Facebook, just, you know, pushing Elijah's murder story out there. And there was a lot of people that connected. There was a lot of people that connected via social media. And many of them wanted to help somehow. McLean had started a GoFundMe a year before to help with funeral expenses, but had pretty much forgotten about it after that. One of the activists, because apparently they were watching the GoFundMe more than I was, But one of the activists told me to look at the GoFundMe, and when I checked it out, it had $2.5 million in there. Shanine McLean was still living in a hotel at that point, and at first she just felt confused and even a bit frustrated. You know, I couldn't understand it, to be honest with you. I didn't understand. I was like, well, he's already cremated. Why are y'all giving money now? You know, this would have helped to make sure he was buried, so in case we needed to exhume the body, we could have done that. But instead, I had to cremate him, so I didn't understand why people were giving money after the fact, you know. She's been able to get stable. She bought a car and a house outside of Aurora. 
she also gave money to homeless organizations that helped her and her family through the years. All the while, Elijah McLean's notoriety continued to skyrocket across the world. When Naomi Osaka wore uh, Elijah's name on a mask, that was awesome. When the coach from the Denver Nuggets wore Elijah's name on his shirt, that was awesome. Local, state, and federal investigations were launched into his death, and a statewide grand jury is probing the officer's behavior now. But the increasing attention also felt like she had lost control of her son's story. Protesters were using Elijah's name to promote causes that had nothing to do with him. She was getting cold called daily for donations from the GoFundMe. She discovered someone who had printed his last words on clothing and was selling it on Amazon. So anybody who's profiting literally off of my son's murder are totally gross. And it's not just in the form of trying to make money off of his death. It's in the form of trying to use his name to gain notoriety for their own organizations, for their own events. While all this was going on, Shanine McLean was getting active, not on the streets, but at the Capitol. She began to work on police reform legislation, a huge bill to ban chokeholds, mandate body cameras, and make it easier to hold officers personally liable. It was mostly inspired by her son's death and passed the legislature last year with wide bipartisan support. It was emotional because I was told that they weren't able to pass that bill before Elijah's murder. And I think to myself, if that bill had to pass before Elijah's murder, Elijah would still be here. Shanine counted this work as a victory, and she has kept at it. She's in frequent touch with Congressman Jason Crow and Joe Neguse, working with them to pass federal police reform legislation that includes a ban on ketamine use during arrests. She filed a lawsuit against Aurora for her son's death. Her new lawyer, Kyuser Mohamed Bai, says Elijah McLean's family has stirred national attempts at change. And in my entire career doing this for almost 20 years, I have never seen such an innocent young man murdered. It's really hard to understand, and the furor and outrage and, and sadness has taken over our community and our, and our country. Mohamed Bai says the McLean lawsuit is moving towards resolution. In the meantime, the new Aurora police chief has asked Shanine to speak to a class of incoming police officers. I'm thinking about it like I would have an opportunity to impact future police officers. It would be nice to think that they'll do the right thing, but they haven't been. You know, as a whole, they haven't been. Two years after his death, Shanine McLean still talks to Elijah. She says sometimes when she's chatting with him, the television will come on. She says she doesn't have any friends anymore, and she doesn't have much peace. But she does have a strong calling to make sure her son's life meant something, and that it will make the world better. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. Allison is back with us now. Allison, what struck you most about what Shanine McLean had to say? You know, I think her quiet determination struck me, her poise, her decision not to be the squeakiest wheel, but to try to change policy, you know. I think the fact she's eschewing the Black Lives Matter spotlight in favor of working on police reform legislation or maybe even talking to a class of cadets, new police academy cadets, speaks to where I think she thinks she can make the most difference in her son's name. 
I also thought some of the unseemly parts of being a high-profile victim were just hard to hear. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I didn't expect these stories. You know, she has to be so incredibly careful now and work in positive ways to make sure her son didn't die in vain and that something even positive could come from all this, at least for other people, if not herself. Allison, you've covered criminal justice issues for years. Shanine McLean's approach to achieving reform, is it unusual when it comes to victims' families? You know, I've only personally talked to a handful of victims of police brutality, and a lot of them take different approaches in trying to tackle reform. Some are out there with a bullhorn, and I think that can make a difference, you know, because it was after George Floyd's death and the subsequent moment of reckoning and all the protests last summer when all these local, state, and federal probes were launched into Elijah McClain's death. You know, that was a full year after he died. It took sort of the summer of protests for all of these official investigations to start. You know, some people, uh, you know, victims of violence, they decide to become lawmakers like Tom Sullivan or Rhonda Fields, both of whom lost children to violence and are now serving in the Colorado legislature. I do think the common thread is that most people stay active and try to make a difference. I think Shanine first started her lonely vigils because she just didn't know what else to do in the days following Elijah's death. And then she met more people and more people and she figured out her path. And I think everyone has a slightly different one. Yeah, just everybody's tragedy is so singular and everybody has to chart their own path in grief. Exactly. Where do things stand right now with the investigation into Elijah McClain's death? This is a good question. There are a few investigations. Um, Most of them are still outstanding. Um, There's a statewide grand jury out investigating the officer's behavior who are involved in his arrest. Um, The state attorney general, Phil Weiser, is still amid his patterns and practices investigation into the Aurora Police Department overall. That was inspired by Elijah McClain's death, but they're going to be looking at the whole police department. The city council hired a few outside groups to look into the police department. Um, Last week, an outside group made almost 50 recommendations for change there. Um, And another one I want to mention is the feds, the U.S. Attorney's Office, which is looking into whether the officers involved in his arrest violated any federal codes of conduct by taking advantage of the fact that they were in a uniform. So that's also still outstanding. Um, And also, as you know, McLean has filed a civil rights lawsuit against the city of Aurora, and that's making progress and near resolution. Allison, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Avery. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry. You can read the story about Shanine McLean at CPR.org, and we'll also link to it in the Colorado Matters podcast. Our show is on the road again. I'll be in Grand Junction, Durango, and Alamosa next week. This week, Ryan Warner is in the field. He was in Rocky Ford and La Junta Monday. Where's he headed next? Well, Ryan is on the line. Hi, Ryan. Hello, Avery. All right, where are you going to host Wednesday's show? We will host from Colorado Springs, second largest city in the state. In fact, I'm already in town. Arrived Monday around lunchtime to our brand new facilities on North Tejon, I'm in our studios at the Southern Colorado Public Media Center, which houses KRCC and CPR. PBS has a presence here, too. And it will be a spot for budding journalists at Colorado College. What stories are you going to bring us? 
We are here for a story that is literally 96 years in the making. That's how long the Martin Drake coal plant and its smokestacks have towered over downtown Colorado Springs and most notably the Mill Street neighborhood. And what's happening to the plant? Well, not too long ago, the last train load of coal came in. And on Thursday, Martin Drake, again in the heart of Colorado Springs, will burn coal for the last time. They are converting the plant entirely to natural gas, and even that is only temporary. Oh, what comes next? Well, I don't want to give everything away, but let's just say that the plant overall moves the springs and its hundreds of thousands of electrical customers into a more climate-friendly direction. What's more, neighbors won't be putting up with the pollution of coal and the constant train noise. So tune in tomorrow for what I promise will be an enlightening conversation about coal, gas, renewables, air quality, global warming, and jobs. So did you get to go inside of the plant itself? I did. Our producer, Ali Budner, arranged for that. Uh, I got to see the dwindling coal pile and meet the plant manager. Her life's changing big time with the last of the coal burning. Do you think you'll cry? (laughs) Um, I already have. You already have. So the last coal train, uh, very emotional. Same thing when we probably are done with coal this week, I will probably be emotional. Um, It's hard not to be, right? It's been my life for 18 years. That is Summer Meese. More from her tomorrow with Colorado Matters on the road again, this time from Colorado Springs. Right. Before I let you go, I would like to address the elephant in the room, COVID and the Delta variant. We've put a lot of thought into if and how to do this road trip. Yeah, this is the viral elephant in the room. So we planned this road trip months ago with the idea of celebrating. I mean, it seemed like the pandemic would soon be under control and we'd hope to broadcast live from busy coffee shops, maybe a school auditorium. Then the Delta variant took hold. So now it's a lot more about safety, ours and yours. As we travel, we are often meeting people outside, masked. We're still doing a lot of video chats. But there's just no substitute for breaking out of the studio and getting to know people where they live. So here we are, and here's to auditoriums and packed cafes when it's safe. Cheers to that. I cannot wait. Thank you, Ray. You're so welcome. That's my colleague Ryan Warner in Colorado Springs, where he'll broadcast tomorrow. Friday, he's in Fort Morgan. Then I hit the road with a tour of the Western Slope and the San Luis Valley. A new kind of meatless meat has taken root in Colorado. A boulder startup called Meaty Foods has developed an alternative grown from fungus. It hopes the product will win over customers and take a bite out of climate change. CPR's Sam Brash reports. Let's just start with the meal itself. When I arrive at Meaty Food headquarters, the company has a table set near the parking lot. Executive chef Ian Clark soon arrives with a set of sandwiches. Um, so first over there, we have our uh, take on sort of a uh, Nashville-style hot chicken, and then did it with a pretty simple slaw, and then some bread and butter pickles. So pretty straightforward. It looks like something you might get out of a food truck, only plated on a wood cutting board. But it's easy enough to look like a chicken sandwich. My main question is whether it would taste like one, too. It's good, and it's like meat. (laughs) I think I would think it is meat. I don't know. That hesitation you're hearing in my voice, that's me trying to remember what chicken tastes like. Because it was close enough to make me wonder whether I really knew. 
The only thing I can really tell that might be different is just something about the texture as you chew it up a little bit. Meaty Food co-founders Justin Whiteley and Tyler Huggins joined me for lunch. After meeting as PhD students at CU Boulder, the pair tried making all sorts of wild stuff for mushrooms, water filters, batteries, and then finally, food. Huggins, who's now the CEO, says it's taken years to mimic meat this precisely. I think to start, want to give consumers something that they're familiar with, fried chicken sandwich. These are things that are part of our culture and part of our daily lives. So it's a great way to, to introduce this new ingredient. A similar strategy has helped alternative meat grow into a $13 billion industry. The most successful companies, like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, mostly make burger patties from plants. Meaty Foods is going a different route, imitating whole steaks and chicken breasts with fungus. Huggins says he knows that leads to a tricky marketing problem. If the strategy works, the results could be both appetizing and kind of unsettling. Yeah, just like, what is it? How do you, like, how, like, especially because it's so similar to animal-based products, people are like, whoa. So to explain how it happens, the founders take me into their current facility. Whiteley, the chief technology officer, says this space is an old distillery, and it still looks like it. At the center is a tall metal tank venting steam. This is our largest vessel right now, and this is where we're growing our mycelium currently. Mycelium is like the root structure of a mushroom. Inside the tank, the strands of fungus are quickly eating through sugar water. The founders wouldn't tell me the species, but said it's a natural variety native to wildfire burn scars. Within, you know, about 500 square feet or so here, we're growing the cow equivalent amount of protein in a four-day period. Whiteley says this efficiency is why the process requires few resources and produces minimal greenhouse gas emissions. Eventually, the company even thinks it could feed the fungus with wastewater from beer production. Once the fermentation finishes, the company processes the results into meat-like products. And I find this part is also apparently under lock and key. At this time, a little bit more proprietary, I'd say, you know, that's... A lot of the secret sauce happens. How do you work with mycelium to get it into those great textures that we really know? In fairness, mushroom-based meat has become a hot investment. Media itself recently raised $50 million to build a factory in Thornton, which it says will produce millions of pounds of protein each year. But the secrecy also might open up a new line of attack from the traditional meat industry. One recent ad campaign tries to label plant-based meats as processed foods with secretive ingredients. I'm not totally convinced that it's a, uh, an accurate or a, or a meaningful charge. This is Peter Newton. He studies food systems as an associate professor of environmental studies at CU Boulder. And he says not all processing is necessarily bad. Think about when we cook, we process food, right? We chop, we mix, we combine, we otherwise alter ingredients from one form to another. That's at a fundamental level, that's all the processing is. Newton says it's probably better for customers to just look at the nutritional label. And on that point, Huggins says meaty offers plenty of promise. So it has all the protein you would find in an animal-based meat, but then it's packed full of fiber and other vitamins and minerals you only find in plants. So it really is sort of like this, you know, hybrid between animal nutrition and plant nutrition in one. And he thinks those benefits will be what matters to customers, not the strangeness of a fungus somehow molded into a sirloin steak. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. When we come back, making sure you're represented. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
At the height of the gold rush, 5,000 people piled into a box canyon in southwest Colorado to strike it rich. And legend has it, as people made the long trek, they hollered, to hell you ride. The town was then called Columbia, but the Postal Service kept sending mail to Columbia, California. So folks in Colorado renamed this one Telluride. In truth, the name comes from a rare mineral of gold and tellurium. And in the early years, there was plenty of gold in the mountains surrounding Telluride. Soon, there was plenty of money. Telluride became the first city in the world with electric streetlights. And there was danger. Telluride is where Butch Cassidy first robbed a bank, more than half a million dollars adjusted for inflation. Today, a ride to Telluride is faster than it once was. You can even book a flight. Pilots who use the one runway say it's one of the most beautiful and dangerous in America and are warned nothing you want to do tomorrow is worth risking lives today. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. There is a lot at stake now that the 2020 census confirms Colorado gets an eighth congressional seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. That means the state has to redraw its political districts, and the deadline to do so is fast approaching. It's something Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News, explores in a series of special reports we're sharing beginning today, how the state's redistricting process works and what could it mean for the balance of power. This is an effort of the whole public affairs team here at CPR News. That's me, Caitlin Kim, and my colleague, Benta Brooklyn. Hey. And Andrew Kenny. That's me. Colorado is in the middle of its once-a-decade effort to redraw political boundaries to reflect where people have moved to and moved from in our state. And for the first time in Colorado, instead of politicians controlling the political lines, we have new politically balanced commissions working together with nonpartisan state legislative staff to get it done. And this is a big deal because Colorado is gaining a U.S. House seat, and that means more representation in Congress. That's only one of the reasons to actually care about this, though. Right. You know, because it's it's not just Congress. These are also the political lines for statehouse seats. People could get new representatives. It can impact the balance of power between the political parties. Right now, Democrats control the state legislature. And these legislative districts also play a role in how much influence different groups and regions of the state have at the Colorado Capitol. And this goes way beyond just politics and who's in power. Mm -hmm. It's been really interesting working on this because this is Colorado's effort to fix something that a lot of people really hate, gerrymandering. It is about a core function of democracy, how to decide who is in power and how we should vote together and some really deep fundamental questions. This is going to be our first time trying something new. And I'm really interested to see whether we could possibly meet expectations for this big reform effort. So we'll have stories each Wednesday and Friday for the next few weeks about how the process works, both in public and, of course, behind the scenes. What does it take to get competitive districts? What you may or may not lose along the way? And, of course, where exactly are they going to put a new 8th congressional district in the state? Before we get to all those things, in this episode, we just want to give you some grounding in redistricting in Colorado and why we have this change. But to understand why it's also a big deal, we kind of have to start with how it used to work. Yeah, I think that's right. One of the things I've been looking into is how Colorado did redistricting in the past. 
when we're talking about redistricting, we are talking about two different sets of maps. So Mm -hmm. one set of maps for congressional seats and the other for state legislative seats. Since Colorado became a state, lawmakers at the Colorado legislature have always drawn the political lines for Congress. Well, like all the way back. Yes. Yeah. And what can make that a little bit tricky is it does require the state house, the state Senate and the governor to sign off on the maps. So (laughs) they all have to agree. Uh, Three out of the last four times. So that's going back to the 1980 census. Mm -hmm. These congressional maps landed in court because there was a stalemate and disagreement. (laughs) So a lot of stalemates. Which year was there not a stalemate? It was after the 1990 census. So during that time, Democrat Roy Romer was governor. And Colorado had a Republican-controlled state legislature. So I think that was quite a feat to get maps people in both parties supported, you know, with Republicans and Democrats. I'm curious, Benta, did they actually get a new congressional seat that year? No, Colorado in 1990 did not get a new congressional seat. So that probably made it a little bit easier. Uh, In 1980, when uh, the congressional maps went to federal court, that's when Colorado got the sixth congressional district. And then in 2000, it went to court again. And that's when Colorado got the seventh congressional district. Now, 10 years ago, it, it was kind of unique because the state lawmakers didn't even draw maps, didn't even submit maps. Didn't even try. <laughs> well, I bet they tried. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what happened there? We had a split legislative control. So we had Republicans in charge of the state House and Democrats, the Senate. And I I went back through some of my old story archives and I found some tape from former Democratic Senator Raleigh Heath. He was the chair of this bipartisan legislative commission. They were charged with redrawing congressional maps and everyone was praising like this is going to be this bipartisan process and we're going to get it done. Here he is talking about why it all fell apart. Trying to do and draw maps during session with all the pressures that all of us have carrying our own bills was a lot to ask. I think with a split legislature, I remember going into that session, I don't know that any of us were really surprised because you can't get a more political process than drawing political lines and the stakes are really high. All right. Well, so, so Benta, if state lawmakers didn't draw the congressional maps, who did? It's kind of, you know, it's, it's a legal battle and ultimately a judge decided. In this case, it was the Denver District Court. All right. So what I'm what I'm hearing is that in the old system, this power to decide who would elect and how we would elect our members of Congress was basically in the hands of lawmakers. But often enough, they couldn't even get their stuff together and it would end up in the hands of judges instead. How did it happen for state legislature, state house districts? Well, it was actually different. I mean, (laughs) since statehood, yes, it used to be state lawmakers. But in 1974, Colorado voters actually changed the Colorado Constitution and they created an 11-member citizen commission to draw maps just for the state legislature. And that was just for one set of maps. But that sounds like it was an earlier reform effort to kind of fix how we approach redistricting. Right. And and every time Colorado used this citizen commission to draw maps, it has gone to court every time (laughs) and ultimately been decided by a judge. Um, And here's Democratic attorney Mark Gruskin. One side or the other would sue to say that the map had violated the constitutional standards or federal law or some other requirement for redistricting. Great. So under both of the systems that we've used in the past, it just ends up going to the courts because this is such a divisive and kind of hard to settle issue. 
Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm not surprised though, because, you know, at the state level, it's about which party controls the state legislature. And at the national level, it's about who has power in Congress. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about power, and no one wants to give that up. It's also about protecting their own jobs, you know, if I'm being really cynical about it. Who's going to write themselves out of a job? Right. So now that we've covered how redistricting worked or didn't in the past, let's bring us a little closer to the present. 2018. That's when voters approved a new way of doing things through Amendments Y and Z. Yeah, and it's a really interesting question. Uh, When they were designing these amendments, they actually started with lawmakers and they were approved by voters in 2018. The big question was, how do you make a system that's going to be fair, whether you're the party in power or you're the party out of power? And at the heart of it was this idea that it should be run by two independent commissions who would kind of be selected by this combination of randomization and uh, nominations and judges. And and the idea was that no party could easily really specifically pick out who they wanted to be on the commission. They couldn't stack the commission. And that's a big difference from a a similar commission we had from the 1970s, because this commission, you can't have a partisan majority if you're a Democrat or Republican, because there's four Democrats, Mm -hmm. four Republicans, for unaffiliated voters, and then you need what? It's a super majority to pass maps. That's yeah. eight out of 12 votes. And the way they got to who's on those commissions is actually kind of fascinating. You know, it's this convoluted process. More than a thousand people applied to be on these commissions, and then they were run through this computer software database that randomly selected some certain number of hundreds of them. And then they got narrowed down by judges and then run through a, a literal bingo ball machine to pick out commissioners' names. And so when you filter people down through all those uh, different, you know, winnowing processes, you ended up with the 12 on the commission. Like you said, four Republican, four Democrats, and four unaffiliated. This almost semi-randomly selected group of people, that's who's tasked with choosing these maps. That sounds like a very tough job, all in all. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So how do we get that draft map? Yeah, so the amendments also contained a number of rules about what the maps were supposed to be. Uh, The shapes of the districts were supposed to be compact and contiguous. You know, basically no more spaghetti, monster, Mm -hmm. tentacle, crazy districts like you might see in some other states, North Carolina. And they also said that you had to preserve communities of interest which is a pretty broadly defined concept, anything from racial and ethnic groups to, you know, just counties and cities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to some extent, they were supposed to encourage competitiveness in these districts as well. But there are literal millions of different maps that would fit those criteria. Right. Mm -hmm. It is so subjective. Super subjective and yet still, like, has these clearly defined, well, somewhat clearly defined rules And what they've done so far this year is that commission staff drew up a draft map, and now they're going on tour to all these public hearings with it, getting feedback from the public about, you know, oh, we don't want to be in a district with such and such county or such and such city. I'm not going to name names, but. uh, (laughs) Yeah. And and then. uh, Douglas County. Yeah. Nobody wants to be with Douglas. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Now, that was just at the one hearing that I attended. I heard that. At you heard hearing, that at your Yes. <laughs> yeah, different hearing. <laughs> oh, rude. Well, anyway, at the, at the end of the day, they have to take all that input into account and, and try to come up with a map 
a final map that they all agree on that they can submit to the state Supreme Court. And if all goes well, it'll be approved by the end of the year. Sounds easy, right? And restore and our faith in democracy, yes. right? Yes, that is. Uh, that, that's the big one. We'll see. <laughs> you know, but that is like the, the hope that I think some people are carrying with this is because the gerrymandering and redistricting has been seen as such a damaging thing. Like when you see, and, and I understand why, because every 10 years, blood sport where one party tries to get an advantage by flexing the rules. Nobody likes that. And maybe this will offer a less toxic way to do that. It'll be a map that everyone hates instead of just one side. I mean, I think the jury is, yeah, right. And I think the jury is still out in the political world on whether this is a a better system. From some of the Republicans I've talked to, they do think it's good. Um, Democrats who are in the majority right now and without this system would have a lot more control. I don't know that they're as excited about it. And one person I talked to was worried that the commission doesn't have the expertise, Mm -hmm. the historical knowledge. And that it wasn't the right, you know, approach. Yeah, there are some really big, big questions involved in this. And we're going to explore more of them later in the series. Right. Caitlin, there are almost a dozen states using some kind of bipartisan or nonpartisan commission this time around. Yeah. How well have commissions worked in other states? So now, while I hate to be a glass half-empty person, but, you know, I do cover Congress, let's look at an example where, to put it mildly, it did not go smoothly. Arizona. There you have a bipartisan commission, two Democrats, two Republicans, and one, one tie-breaking independent. That's a tough job to have. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Um, The last go-around, that independent commissioner faced some intense opposition for doing her job and casting the tie-breaking vote usually siding with Democrats. She, you know, she had apparently had to move out of her house at one point wow. because she was getting threats. Wow. Yeah. So um, the Republican-dominated Senate and the Republican governor at the time removed her from the commission. The state Supreme Court actually had to get involved and reinstated her wow. unanimously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so just to point out how fraught this process can be, the Arizona legislature actually sued to stop it, saying voters did not have the authority to strip lawmakers of their power to draw district lines. Wow. Yeah. In 2015, the Supreme Court sided with Arizona voters. And when I talked to the League of Women Voters here in Colorado, they said that that 2015 decision really paved the way for a lot more states, including Colorado, to set up independent commissions for congressional redistricting. Because prior to that Arizona decision, they didn't know if they could legally do that. Huh. So Colorado is part of this new wave of attempting to hand power more to voters and away from the legislature on this issue. It's so interesting, Lynn, to hear about Arizona, though, because it points to, like, you can draw some clear-seeming rules, but it's so hard to get politics out of this process. Exactly. Because it is politics. Exactly. (laughs) Is there a state that you feel like got it right more often than not? Um, A lot of redistricting experts point to California. I know how Coloradans feel about California, (laughs) but yes, apparently in this case, they have the gold standard. (laughs) Similar to what voters approved here. So in 2010, California had a 14-member commission, five Democrats, five Republicans, four no-party or different party members, and they needed a supermajority to approve the final maps. Now, Yuri Rudinsky, a redistricting council with the Brennan Center's Democracy Program, says this system has delivered. And if you look at, say, California over the course of the last 10 years, uh, there were always districts in play for both parties. Uh, There were always competitive districts where the parties uh, had candidates that that fought to win. 
So he's saying that the California system delivered some districts where there was a, like a good fight and both sides kind of had a chance and nobody got shut out. Exactly. He called them responsive districts, responding to sort of the change uh, in mood of population over time. And Len, this is for Congress and state house. Yes, Congress and state house. Now, having states use independent commissions is something that is catching on, especially when it has become a long, drawn-out partisan battle that ends up in court. But Cynthia die, who was a Democratic commissioner for the California redistricting uh, process in 2010, is an unabashed champion for an independent redistricting commission because she thinks it's a more transparent process and that the public has input. And it's important for pe- the people to be part of this process. Now, die did have a piece of advice for Colorado's commission. You know, the question should always be who who is not in the room you know, are there communities that are underserved that, uh, you know, don't have time to come out and, and testify? And are we making sure that, uh, that they are being, their interests are being represented? I think that's exactly right. You know, dealing with COVID and everything else people have going on in their lives, it's hard to get regular people engaged in the process. I'll take the counter, though. I think people will really care about this process and do both because of, like we were saying, everybody hates gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. And also because, like, this involves, you know, trying to figure out what what your community is. Who do you want to vote with? And who do you want to vote for? Do you want to be with other people from your party? Or do you want to be in a, you know, a knockdown, drag out fight all the time? This map will help decide kind of what your whole political future is like for your neighborhood or your city. At least for the next 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> CPR Public Affairs reporters Benza Berkland, Andrew Kinney, and Caitlin Kim, and Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Hear this and all of the redistricting episodes at Apple, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts. Online at CPR.org and right here on Colorado Matters. The opening ceremonies for the Paralympics in Tokyo are today. Of the athletes named to the Team USA roster, 11 consider Colorado home. Among them, Robert Tanaka from Denver, who's blind, he'll be competing in judo. Being Japanese-American, I have that, you know, cultural aspect as well. You know, I'm in the country of where judo is born, and I'm representing my country, USA. So both of that combined, I I really feel like that kind of makes who I am in a way. 23-year-old Sophia Herzog of Salida has a form of dwarfism. She's competing in swimming. Herzog recently set two American Paralympic records. I'm actually a pretty slow warmer-upper. The first 500 is, is pretty crummy and it doesn't feel great. And then all of a sudden I can hold the time pretty easily. And Kyle Kuhn is a paratriathlete from Carbondale. He's blind. I spoke with him in July when he found out he'd made Team USA. I'm still pinching myself. I'm I'm still asking myself, is it is it real or am I still dreaming and am I am I waking up soon? So, but it's uh, it feels great. You and I talked last June. You just moved out of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Training Center at that point. It's in Colorado Springs. You're an athlete in residence there, but because of COVID restrictions, you'd been training in your room for weeks, away from teammates and out of the pool. Tell me a little bit about this last year. How have your training and competitions changed along with the pandemic? Yeah, so the the, the training it, itself, um, 
you know, we, it was hard to get back to, to training. Eventually we were able to get back to the training center and eventually we were able to start training together as a team. But one of the things that I think really stood out uh, over this past year was when we all got back together, uh, my teammates and I, we just had this overwhelming sense of, of gratitude toward each other and being able to train with each other and push each other to, to higher and higher levels. And that is, that has manifested itself in us raising our game and performing at super high levels in the, in the competitions and the races that we've had the last few months. So it, it you know, COVID restrictions have definitely, you know, they're still in place, especially at, at races, especially internationally um, and, and still at the training center, but it's been overwhelming gratitude and, and just relief to, uh, to be training with my teammates again and, and pushing ourselves to all new levels. You've obviously had a solid competition season leading up to the Paralympics. You finished first at a triathlon in Florida earlier this year, and you're actually in Japan for another race in May. What was that experience like? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yokohama, Japan. Uh, we, we raced there at, uh, at one of the staple events, the World Triathlon Paris Series in Yokohama. And that was an experience, you know, Japan uh, you know, still having a lot of uh, issues with COVID-19. And um, we had to get some special exceptions to be able to, to race and compete. And we lived in a, this bubble environment where we weren't allowed to leave our hotel unescorted. And we could only go to certain places to train and, and race. And uh, we had to have all these different apps on our phone so that we, we could be tracked and we had to do a lot of symptom tracking and, and several, you know, COVID nineteen tests as well. So that was quite an experience. But you know, it it, it you know it worked out. We uh, we went over. We we raced. We competed. Um, I was able to to pull down my first major international win on the international circuit at, at that race. So it was a it was a huge victory for me. And and we had a lot of victories on on you know for Team USA as well while we were there. You navigate biking, swimming, and running with a guide. You and Andy Potts teamed up last summer. Now Potts is the first Olympic triathlete to also be a guide in the Paralympics. He was obviously familiar with racing, but what is it like for you to train someone how to guide? You know, it's it's interesting because really all I do is is I uh, I tell my guides and, and the people that I'm training to guide, I'm like, look, you know how to guide. It's just a matter of what you see. It just has to go from your brain out of your mouth now and you just got to verbalize it. So, you know, you see what's coming up in a few steps. You just got to speak it out loud. That's all. Um, <laughs> so it's pretty straightforward and pretty simple. And Andy took to it real quick and uh, we've had some really incredible races and we train together a lot now. So it's, it's been awesome, you know, getting to tap into his wisdom and knowledge and, you know, learn from him in terms of racing and, and, uh, and then also, uh, you know, you know, him learning from me on, on guiding and, and the importance of communication as well. Yeah, it sounds like a whole lot of communication. You've competed in different sports throughout your life, and you picked up triathlon a little more than five years ago. What drew you to it? You know, triathlon is, it's so fascinating because it's, it's swimming, it's cycling, and it's running. But really what it is, it's not a, it's not a swim race, it's not a bike race, it's not a run race, it's a swim, bike, run race. And, and I love just putting those all together. And like, I'm not, a, I'm not the strongest swimmer, I'm not the strongest cyclist, I'm not the strongest runner. But you know, when I, I love being able to put that puzzle together and figure out how could I you know, swim, bike, and run as fast as I possibly could. And, and so that's really what, 
what drew me to it, the challenge, the ability to just put all of that together. Yeah. You've got a little over six weeks before you race. How are you using that time? So I'll be heading back to the, uh, the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center, and um, we'll start the build. We'll work on honing the skills. Um, we've got a, built up a lot of fitness over the, over the last few years, and, and now it's just a matter of you know, honing that edge and uh, finding that edge that will push us over the top for us to be you know, considered medal contenders and ensure that we have the best race possible come race day. Are you concerned that Japan is in a state of emergency when it comes to COVID-19? You know, it's tough. It's challenging. But, you know, we also recognize that a lot of safety precautions have been put in place. And, and we're, we're confident in the International Paralympic Committee and, you know, the, the Japanese government and, and our own safety precautions. And look, as para-athletes, we're used to adapting. We, we improvise, we adapt, and we overcome. And we're excited and we're, we're ready to face any challenges that, that may come our way. You're also adapting. Tokyo is more hot and humid than Colorado, and it is at sea level. How do you get ready for those changes? Oh man, heat and humidity, and whew, that's that's it's a challenge. That's for sure. So actually, what we're going to do is we are going to uh, you know we're going to fly from Colorado. Uh, we're going to stage in Kona, Hawaii, for ten days. So we're going to get some heat and humidity training in Hawaii. And then we'll fly from Hawaii to Tokyo uh, just under a week before our race. And we'll be ready to rock and roll. And in the meantime, there's a special room at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center that helps, right? It does. So, yeah, it's called the High Altitude Training Chamber. And uh, we can use some controls and stuff to adjust the heat and the humidity in that room um, to like Tokyo conditions. And we can actually bring it down to sea level. Uh, so we'll do uh, one or two sessions in there per week as we uh, as we get closer and closer. Wow. And yeah, it's, it, it'll be uh, it'll definitely it'll be it'll help to for, you know when we get to Kona to, to be less of a shock. And then mm. uh, you know, we'll be training every day in Kona. And then uh, when we get to Tokyo, hopefully we'll be uh, nice and adapted by the time race day rolls around. That is cool technology. Well, thank you, Kyle, so much, and good luck at the games. Thanks, Avery, for having me. Kyle Kuhn from Carbondale. We spoke last month before he headed to Tokyo to compete in the Paralympic Games. Opening ceremonies are today. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lowe. With special thanks to John Pinnow and Megan Verlee, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.